You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. This is the Golf Under Par Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jeremy McCullough. We are on a journey to find the information that's going to help you play the best golf of your life. Join us now as we dive in. Welcome, everybody, to the Golf Under Par Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jeremy McCullough, here with special guest, Dr. William Wu. We got some uh, people passing by behind him there, but it's all good because you guys probably can't see this. So, anyways, Dr. Wu is a... He has a PhD in motor learning. He's a professor out of Cal State University, uh, Long Beach, if, if I'm not mistaken. And he's also the founder of Skilled Coaching Alliance, where he helps golf coaches kind of improve their ability to teach their, teach their students to play better golf, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I'm a, an associate professor there. Um, I also do motor control, and I direct the Center for Sport Training and Research at the university. Um, so, I, my passion, I really enjoy the golf realm, but um, I'm also involved with helping a lot of other athletes and a lot of other sports also applying motor control and learning into their uh, sport training. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what sport doesn't need it? What, what individual doesn't really need it? Right. So, yeah, it works really well in golf because golf is such a, uh, just so heavy. It's a heavy skill-based sport. Right. So what I mean by that is, um, you know, even though you see things like Bryson where he's getting bigger and stronger, um, usually in golf, it's not similar as basketball or football where there's a you need to be a certain height or a certain weight. Um, when you look at the history of golf champions, they're all different shapes and sizes, different style swings. And so really what that points to is there are no physical necessary um, anthropometric requirements associated with golf. So that kind of leads to golf is a little bit more skill oriented or heavy on the skill side. And so that feeds into uh, motor control and learning really well, because it's motor control and learning is all about how we can control our movements and develop skill over time. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's what draws me. You, you can't tell from, from here, but I'm only five, six, you know, one, one sixty five or so. And so I, I feel like I could connect with Rory McIlroy being out there where he's, you know, somewhere in that range as well, where he's only five, six, five, seven, you know, he might be 180 at this point with depending on where he's sitting, but. Yeah, it's, it's a really good example. Like if you look at the longer hitters, you'll have DJ who's taller and lankier, but then, you know, Rory McIlroy isn't, is a different body type. He's shorter. Um, and he's put on some, better weight um, right. during his, during the recent years. And then you look at guys like Ricky Fowler, who are, he might be like 155, like no more than five, nine, five, ten, um, And he hits it pretty far also. And so it just goes to show you how skill oriented golf is. Right. And so you have to uh, really, when you think about how you practice golf and how you want to get better at golf, um, it's really good to do the fitness oriented things because those are foundational components that allow you to swing. Um, but also be really keen, just as keen as you are with your nutrition or with your strength or with your prehab rehab stuff, be just as keen with your, um, your development on the skill side and have a really good foundation from a, from a data or evidence based um, training protocol. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So well, we kind of, you kind of touched on this, why you're interested in golf and, and particularly with what you do. Um, but what kind of got you, what kind of get your foot into the door with golf? Um, you know, you play golf as a kid or anything along those lines? No, I didn't never play golf as a kid. I didn't start playing golf until after high school. And it was, um, you know, I grew up playing baseball. It was a primary sport, played a lot of volleyball um, in Southern California kind of thing, doing water sports and those types of types of things. Um, so all up to, up until high school, you know, baseball early on and then high school, primarily volleyball, indoor and outdoor. And then my dad started getting into golf after high school. And then, um, 
it was kind of funny because my brother and I were mainly, you know, kind of baseball guys when it came to a, came to a stick and a ball. We neither didn't watch golf on TV or anything like that. And my dad picked it up and we kind of snickered at him a little bit, gave him a hard time. And then he convinced us to go out and, um, dude, we're both, we just both got seriously hooked on it. Um, and I had no idea at that time, uh, what I wanted to do in terms of my career or what scientific discipline I was going to be in or anything like that. And so it was just kind of a really, really cool kind of happenstance situation where, you know, I got exposed to the game. And then as I was going through my formal schooling, uh, figured out what I wanted to do. And um, one of the passions that I have as a hobby mixed in really well with one of the passions that I have for my career and the science that I'm involved with. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. So, all right. So now we've got you on here and you are an expert in, in motor learning. So we want to pick your brain about all these things since golf is such a heavily skill uh, dominant sport here. Let's start off with talking about, you know, the way that most golfers practice. They go to the range, yeah. they hit a bunch of balls, or maybe during the winter months, they're hitting you know, indoors with a track man or something along those lines. Um, and they yeah. go one club until they feel like they've perfected it. So what's yeah. wrong, what's right about this kind of scenario that we typically think of when we think about practicing golf? Yeah, so they're, uh, usually when I have to answer that question, it's, it's kind of depending upon level. So um, if it's a PGA Tour player that I'm working with, um, how I answer that question is going to be completely different to how – um, someone who, you know, maybe plays once a month and can get out to the range a couple times. Um, so I think for the most part, when people conceptualize what practice is, um, there's no foundation. There's no scientific foundation for how they go about how they go about doing it. Yeah. Um, and one of the reasons why is because me being in the field, motor control, motor learning is in a sense practice. Um, it's a practice science. Um, the the data in terms of the age of science is relatively new, right? So we have kind of really dominant theories coming out like 1975. And when you think about different theories in physics and chemistry and biology and things like that, they're so much older. Um, and so what I, the impression that I get is people are doing things based off experience, um, based off what they've done in the past, um, and it's just kind of, um, it's not so evidence-based in nature. Now, I'm not going to go as far as saying that people, some people haven't figured it out. I think the really good coaches have figured it out over time. And I think a really good example that I use with my students is um, John Wooden. And so um, I guess at some point in his career, I don't know if it was later or older, um, he, John Wooden was asked after a game, why isn't he standing up coaching during the game a lot, right? Barking at his players' instructions. And he basically said, I'm trying to figure out what they need to work on in practice, right? And that is right on the money in terms of how we view or how I view tournament performance and practice performances. They're two different, they're two different things that you need to be able to observe and you need to be able to plan for. And so sometimes people figure that out. Right over time, I think Phil Jackson of the Lakers, I've heard some quotes about how he he used games to help figure out, um, help his players figure out how to work with each other and on the court and things like that. But if he has players like Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, Shaquille O'Neal, you can afford to do that because you're probably going to get a lot of wins anyways. But I think right. the main tenant of it is is figuring, at least from the Phil Jackson perspective, figuring it out within um, within the within the competitive environment um, and learning within the competitive environment, which is good. And, you know, turn competitive tournaments, even if you're a golfer, there's learning going on there. Um, and that gets to what I call periodization of skill. Um, some tournaments early on in the season um, have kind of less importance than others. Right. So you can kind of say for a highly competitive golfer, um, even though they're trying to win every tournament, I'd imagine, the majors are more important than another just regular tournament to them. Um, so there's different things that you can do there, but I think what a lot of amateurs tend to do is not go in. Um, I don't want to say amateurs, but a lot of um, weekend golfers kind of go in to practice situation. First of all, not necessarily having a plan on what to do. And then 
when they when they don't have a plan, it just you don't know what you're going to get out of it, right? Um, yep. And then I'd probably say the second thing is people are looking for some sustained level of success within that practice session. Um, and what that tends to do is it tends to get someone or get players hyper-focused on one specific aspect of what they're trying to work on. Um, and so I think in general, those are probably some of the things that, that go wrong. Nothing wrong with nothing wrong with that. It's just a matter of the, the science hasn't been around long enough for people to understand or for, for it to filter out. Yeah, and so you, you kind of mentioned this and that's the uh, hyper-focus on, on one kind of point and so yeah. i'd love to kind of talk to you a little bit about you know from a performance standpoint okay we're looking to play better on the course so yeah we hear about this block or you know repeatedly hitting the same thing over and over again versus this random practice where we go from you know hitting just a shot to another club to another club to another club back and you know just kind of randomly picking up randomly but you know choosing different clubs to hit and like so which yeah i hear some coaches seem like oh you got to be really good at doing you know, what you do and others one saying it's like, you got to be better at adapting no matter what. And so you need to change it around. So kind of where, what do we do with this? Yeah. So it's interesting. I've, I've gotten that question a lot and I do a lot of speaking engagements and um, I get a lot of calls from coaches and players asking me that question. Um, and if you know the research, like I've been heavily involved with that research ever since, geez, probably when I was an undergrad, um, and it's pretty funny how people get stuck on like this block random thing, which is totally fine, I think. Um, but I think if you look at it from a research perspective, then it doesn't make as much sense. Um, and basically what block random practice is, right? When you repeatedly do something over and over and then you switch to something else and you do it over and over again, um, that's block practice. And then random practice is a complete end of the spectrum. It's where you're always changing things up. And then people always ask, which one is better? And I always ask, that's the wrong question um, because uh, I use block practice um, with my players. I use random practice with my players, but I probably use more in the middle, right? So you want to think of those two practice styles as extremes. They're polar opposites to one another, right? You might think of like, I guess in this day and age, you think like the political spectrum, regardless of what you want, you have your most extreme on one end and most extreme on the other end, but most people are somewhere in the middle and there's a lot of room in the middle, depending on what issue, right, there is. Right. And so that, that'll be in the end of that kind of political angle, but it's the same with uh, block and random practices. They're really two extremes. And the reason why we have them um, in the research is because one of our jobs in from a research standpoint is to look at very different, like I'll just break it down to practice, very different types, styles of practice, right? So if I'm from a research standpoint, I want to highlight two different styles of practice. And when I'm generating those conditions of practice, I'm not going to, I'm not going to generate conditions of practice that are very similar to one another. Right? I'm not going to do that from a scientific standpoint. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take an extreme like random practice. I'm going to compare it to an extreme like block practice. And um, I'm going to make those comparisons. And so from a scientific perspective, that's the right way to start out. Right. And it got super popular because imagine all the people doing repetitions like drills, drills over and over again. It's really popular. Um, and it's not a bad thing right? It depends on circumstance, um, what you're trying to do, et cetera. But so many people have done it for a really long time where we got these results that were really different from how people understood practice and were actually doing it. So it was like, it was, it was, it was this moment of, wow, is this seriously happening? And so there's a lot of replication studies. And then when there's a lot of replication studies, it's okay, what about this type of motor skill, that type of motor skill? So all of a sudden you have all these um, all these research studies in blocked and random practice. And our intent as researchers is to have two very different styles of practice to be able to compare them, right? Because it doesn't make sense for us to compare something really similar to random practice to random practice. That doesn't make sense from a scientific standpoint, at least in our ability to identify what's going on with the nervous system and what's going on with how we process, um, you know, 
movements and things like that and how we um, transfer movements to new scenarios, all those types of things. And so we have all these studies and then um, it kind of took on a movement of its own where people, the word kind of got out a little bit and then all of a sudden it just becomes blocked in random practice because and it's funny because it's just a, it's a research methodology artifact. Um, and uh, this is something that, that I explained to my um, coaches in the skill coaching lines a lot is understanding the history of where this stuff comes from allows you to understand how people are using it incorrectly or implementing it incorrectly. And so it's a, it's a, it's a tough question to answer in a general sense. Like, is it blocked or random? Cause like I said before, I have really high level players who I use block practice with, but I also use random practice with, but those two are actually used the least amount. I use the most in between blocked and random practice. Um, and there's methods to identify where someone should be within that, within that continuum. Um, but I would say, I would say this for, for most, for most for most golfers that are out there, most people who are playing golf, you're, they're not PGA tour or highly competitive. Most people are just trying to, you know, they're trying to beat their buddies for like, like I am for 20 bucks a round or five, five bucks a round. Um, for most of that, I don't even think like um, you need to worry about that initially because there's a concept before random and block practice called practice variability that is very useful for, uh, for amateur weekend golfers that, even before you get to random and block practice, um, you'll get more benefit out of looking at how you can do things differently. Um, blocked and random practice is a is how we order variation or how we do things differently. So it's like a step that people are taking and you need to consider, once you consider some practice variability options before um, you talk about some of this random block practice stuff. Um, and so I think for the average golfer, if you just allow yourself to, if you know what the ideal is, right, your swing ideal, um, then just practice some variations that are around that ideal. So practice ideal. So what basically what I'm saying is to practice things a little bit incorrectly with correct. And so um, one of the things that um, I, you know, one of my skilled coaching coaches actually came down and visited and he had a range session with me. And the things that we were working on were um, he wanted a little bit more into out path. And so where we started was just give me a serious, severely perverted into out to where you like your most intense feeling of into out. And so we work from that, from that standpoint, right? So we might call that a hundred percent, like a hundred percent intensity of into out of the good a hundred percent. And we work from there. Um, and then you can use, like, you can use your video, you can use your iPhone or you can use your iPad to compare, like, are you getting the movements that you want at hundred percent intensity of that specific technical cue? And oftentimes people don't, they need a lot more than that. And so it's some of the things that you can, some general things that you can work on. If you try to do it as intensely as possible, what is the result? Is the result under of what you want? And then if, if it is under what, what you want, well, you got, you got to do it. You got to do it a lot harder than, or a lot more intensely than that. And so just that concept alone, I think helps get people um, to understand what it is that they're trying to do with their golf swing a lot better. So, so when you're saying that practice variability, we're thinking more along the lines of maybe if you feel like you're constantly making contact with like the, the toe, for example, we want to kind yeah. of work a different extreme to get the, maybe the feeling better of where we're making contact or just kind of centralize that, that contact. Yeah. So if, if we were just to take that specific example, not knowing anything else about the swing, right. right. But we'll just, we'll just focus on that one for the sake of simplicity. If they're always hitting on the toe, we'll do some drills where you're hitting, not only hitting on the toe, but you're hitting towards the heel or you're hitting towards center face contact. Um, you know, I do, I do that type of like face contact drills all the time with players of differing levels. Um, and it's just how close to the center of the face do you want to be that is determined by how good the player is. And so I could say, all right, I just want, you know, I want like, I want like half a, like half a pinky finger away from the center face contact, really good player is going to be able to do that. Um, but maybe a player who's not as good, 
um, a higher handicapper player, you're just like anywhere towards the toe is totally fine. It's a success anywhere towards the heel. You can even ozzle it. And if, if, if that's what you were trying to do, that's completely, that's 10 out of 10 right there. Right. And so how close, um, how you set up those variations is largely determined by the expertise level of, of the player. All right. We'll move on from this block and random practice, this practice variability. And, and let's go on to, you know, some of the things that a lot of people have like swing thoughts and they sit there and go, yeah. okay, I need my hands in this position or, or whatever. And then other people think, uh, you know, maybe a little bit more externally and think, okay, belt buckle to, to the target at, at impact. Yeah. And so where do we go with this internal external kind of focus of, of maybe swing thoughts and, yeah. and just improving our performance? I'm going to start out with this. I was like, there's sometimes the, the people have the goal of having zero swing thoughts. And I don't think that's realistic. I don't think that's realistic. Um, from an attentional standpoint, we know from an attentional standpoint, whether you have conscious and non-conscious attention. So you're going to be paying attention to it regardless. Um, the question is, is if you have swing thoughts, how, how should you orient your swing thoughts? And there's a really cool motor control concept that kind of leaks into motor learning concepts called the focus of attention. Um, and you alluded to it, internal and external focus of attention. And so internal focus of attention, quick definition is if you're thinking about your body, your body parts, right? And then an external focus of attention is if you're thinking about the effect of those body parts. And so that's the, basically the, the, uh, the simplest, cleanest definition of those. And if you're thinking about anything body related, then it becomes internal, right? Um, and so there's an overwhelming amount of research uh, that says that an external focus of attention is better than an internal focus of attention. Um, from a performance standpoint, when I mean performance, like in the moment standpoint, and then from a learning standpoint too, so over time. And so if, I would if, if you're gonna have a swing thought, you want it to be external in nature rather than internal in nature. The trick is that's the science of it, right? And so whenever there's application of this in the real world, there's always an art component. And so and I learned this really early um, during my PhD years, I was fortunate enough to be um, a high performance scientist, a motor learning scientist for USA Track and Field. It was really a phenomenal experience for um, such a young, young part of my career. Um, but I was working with um, a couple Olympic medal athletes, um, 100 meter sprinters, a female and a male. And this is about the time when this stuff was, it was still pretty new. Um, but I learned right away in that, in that session that um, what works, what external focus cue works for one athlete isn't going to work for another athlete. But the science didn't deviate, right? They came up with their own external cues for the same technical problem, but they, but we found that they use different external cues. And so that's the art part of it um, as a player, like your coach, coaches are becoming a lot more, um, you know, I just look at my skilled coaching alliance and how good some of these coaches are at, at using some of these cues. Um, and so you might have a coach that gives you an external cue. If it's not working for you, it's not because the, it's not the external focus is not, working it's just because maybe you need a different conceptualization of that of that um how you should be moving your body um using that external cue but yeah i mean uh long story short if you are thinking about anything in your swing it should be it should be external it's good for it's even good for pressure situations too right there's some there's some putting studies where they induce um you know it's kind of fictional pressure but nonetheless it's it's pressure um, where external focus attention holds up a lot better than internal focus of attention. And then we could see, like I've done, I, you know, I've been studying this for a while. It's not even an outcome, but if you look at movement coordination, movement coordination is so much better. Like when you talk about joint coordination, joints working together, um, we see this biomechanically, we see these things. So we see it even from a muscle activity standpoint, um, we see better outcomes with an external via internal. And so it's hard for me to argue right now. Like some people will say, oh, well, you know, you have, this has to be for better players. It has to be internal. Um, I won't, 
I won't ever say never use internal. I just say, if you've exhausted all the external routes, then go for it. But there's too much data right now in a variety of different ways to be able to go jump internal ahead of external. Yeah, and it, it takes a it takes a, a bit to kind of really, you know, for so long in my in, in my PT career, physical therapy and, and teaching people, okay, I want you to do this and this and this, and I want this to be here. And then now, now I'm like, how do I get them to do what I want them to do without telling them, hey, I want your knees to be here and or you know yeah. your foot to be here. And it's like it takes some some timing. So it's it, some of the cues I hear some some coaches give, and I'm like, that's brilliant. That like yeah. how long did it take you to to get that change and thought process and really kind of focus on it. Cause I still catch myself sometimes just being like, Oh yeah, I want, I want thumb here, this position here or, or whatever. Yeah. I, I, I look at it. I divide it up this way is uh, practitioners. I'll say practitioners because you know, in the university I'm teaching people who want to be in rehab and the rehab sciences, PTs, OTs, eight uh, athletic trainers. Mm-hmm. And I'm also teaching people who want to be um, like high performance coaches and I'm also teaching um, people who want to do physical education K through 12. Um, so I have a variety of movement related practitioners, but what I say to all of them is you have to look at these skill development um, scenarios is you have to distinguish, distinguish between what is the biomechanical analysis component and what is the quote unquote instructional component. Um, and so if you can do that, then it helps you to deliver information, whoever it is that you're working with much in a much better way is biomechanical information is critically important, right? Critically important, but your session with them shouldn't be a regurgitation of that analysis, right? That's for you to understand. And then it's also important that you translate that information. I, that's why I work, like I work with a lot of biomechanists bio from, a research standpoint, and also from my consulting um, in in sports science, is there the analysis part, biomechanics, and motor control and learning is the translation part. So how do you translate biomechanics? You translate biomechanics through motor control and motor learning principles. And that's why in a lot of the teams that I have, whether in be in an academic setting or in a you know more applied consulting setting, um, you know. I'm always bio, biomechanist and I are always able to work well because there's that, there's that kind of complementary component there. Okay. Very cool. And um, so let's move on to, to, you know, let's just talk briefly about technology because we could go a whole podcast on, on use of technology probably to, to yeah. improve performance. We could do a whole podcast on any one of these topics that <laughs> we've discussed so far. Yeah. Very true. Very true. <laughs> Um, but yeah, there's so many, there's so many different technologies that, that you see people using and, and whatnot. And, yeah. uh, but what are, what are some useful technologies that, that maybe the day, the day-to-day golfer, your weekend golfers maybe should consider trying to try to use to kind of improve their game? I think one of the things that everybody has right now is video, right? Um, so that's obviously a form of technology, um, and it's good. technology, in a sense, gives us information. Gives us information that we can't get on our own through our own, you know, sensory sensory feedback, so to speak. And so, you can use video really, really well. Uh, or sorry, you can use video really, really easily. If you can do use it well, that's a completely different story. And so, one of the things to use it well, you need a couple things. I think one of the things that you need is you need a good starting point. Um, um, a couple of coaches like, or a coach that I use this analogy uh, often with is uh, Mark Blackburn. Uh, Mark Blackburn is just, he just recently got awarded uh, coach of the year by the PGA um, or teaching professional of the year by the PGA. But we use this ingredients recipe analogy. And I always say, you got to have good ingredients. And when you're using video, you have to have good ingredients. And where do those good ingredients come from? They come from an instructor. So it could be like, let's say position at the top of the backswing, like where the hands or where the handle should be at the top of the backswing. And so if you have that from your coach, you can use video in a really nice way, right? And so you might, one example, one specific example that I use that I give to people a lot is if you're going to use video, um, record five of your swings, 
but don't look at the video after every five swings. Wait till you get to the fifth one and then review the five. And then review the five in comparison with the good ingredients that you've got from your coach. Like where should it be, right? And try to remember after each shot or after the summary five, like what it felt like to be in those positions and then go give it another try in the next five, right? And so really from, um, from a video standpoint, it's really, really good to use, but you need good ingredients, meaning you need to have some guidance, whether it be, I don't know, people have online coaching or maybe people even looking at YouTube videos and things like that and trying to duplicate a position. Either way, you got to compare that with what you're doing, right? And then the other part of that is being very, very diligent, diligent about not overusing or overviewing the video. So if you find yourself view, looking at the video after every shot or you're looking at it more than you're not looking at it, then you're probably not using it in a way that's best for learning. But that's the general thing because the reason why I take that five, the, you can look at every, every five, you can look at it, all your five swings, but just after your fifth one is that human nature is everybody want, they, they want to record every swing. And it might be even easier too. You can just leave the camera on, right? Um, but it's just the timing of it. The timing of how you view the video is really important. Right. And so, and so I, am a full believer in technology, right? And so I think video is something that everybody has for me. It's not whether you're using technology. Oh, that's my, um, that's my, that's my Bernadoodle Felix. Um, uh, it's not a matter of if you're using technology, you should be using it. It's a matter of, are you using technology? Well, so everybody has, everybody has a video camera on their phone or most people do. Um, so you can start there. Another thing that I like a lot probably is some form of, um, some form of information and it's getting cheaper these days, although it's still, it's still on the expensive side. If you can have some type of launch monitor data of what the ball is doing or what the, what the club is doing, that's extremely helpful also. Um, and so there's, it ranges, right? So like higher price launch monitors can cost from $30,000 and a little bit less than that. But you have some more um, consumer friendly price um, monitors, at least compared to $30,000 that are in the, you know, that could be anywhere from, you know, a couple thousand area. Um, but I, those are good pieces of technology too, but it's just a matter of how you use that technology. So what, with, with regard to launch monitors, like what were you thinking for, for you know, again, maybe the more of the weekend golfers in this instance, because all the golf pros are going to use a lot more data and, and need to look more like at spin rates and stuff like that, which may not be probably the most important thing for an amateur, I would, my yeah. guess. Um, but yeah. like, so what, what kind of things should you would point out, like ball flight, um, you know, distances, what kind of are these? Yeah, I mean, things like ball flight, I think you can always get a general impression for, for ball flight by just kind of what you see. Um, distance, you can kind of get a general impression. Um, to me, what I'm working with is really helpful for me, not only from a research standpoint, but just from working with players, if I can see what the club is doing. Um, because if I can see what the kinematics of the club, like path, face orientation, things like that, um, it's much more... I don't want to say I, I don't. I'm not minimizing ball data, but it's just more impactful uh, for me um, if I can see the uh, path and face orientation and things like that. And then for me, I can develop, I can develop practice design out of out of those variables with that in a in a really nice way for players. Um, but it's a little bit. I think it becomes when you start to look at the club, then that then that's when that technology becomes a little bit more pricier. Yeah. Um, although there, there's some decent alternatives these days. And then I think up and coming like in the next year or so, it's going to be much more price friendly to get club, um, club kinematics from, from cheaper price technologies. Right. Yeah. I think I just saw Rapsodo is really something fairly yeah. affordable, $500 or something like that. Yeah. That's, that's really affordable. I've seen that a couple of colleagues and I, um, have, um, you know, contributed to some of what, what they're doing there. But um, does Rapsodo give you, do they give you club kinematics? I, I, don't, I don't think so. I haven't looked too much okay. close into that. I just, I just know I've seen 
you know, a couple of things pop up on my feeds when I'm going in social media about, you know, Hey, we need testers for this or, or, Hey, I just got this. And, and so I, I, yeah. I've been meaning to kind of look at it, but we don't, yeah. so I'm not sure what, what they give you yeah. in that aspect. But. And, and, and I think golf coaches can look at ball data and, and, and piece together what's happening. Right. And with a bunch of views, but if you're just talking about, you know, your average golfer, um, they're not going to be able to piece the clues together so much, but right. um, that's really helpful too. But everybody has, everybody has video. Um, and then there's access to different analysis tools that um, analyze data about your round, right? So strategy, uh, where the weaker part of your game, where the weaker part of your game is when you are playing, um, just knowing your dispersion, Right. You could do this by hand or you can use an app, but there's a variety of tools that you can use that tell you about how you play to help improve your game. And that's not those are just that's just better decision making. Right. That's not improving your motor skill. But decision making is really important. Right. Like, and I think they can bring up a good point. I have no idea, you know, my dispersion on, on some things like my driver is probably like 200 yards wide because my slice, you know, yeah. <laughs> something crazy like that. But um and I, I, I personally don't have any idea on that. And um, I'm sure knowing that would help me pick my targets better because rather than just yeah. aiming straight at the middle of the green or straight up the pin, you know, I can, I can say, okay, I hit most of my shots in this little general area. So if I aim over here, I'm going to be in a decent spot, most likely. Totally. totally. Um, and I think looking at knowing those trends really helps um, make better decisions and better decisions will help your score. And that doesn't really have to do anything with refining your motor skill at all. Um, but I think those are quick ways that you can, like um, a lot of golfers can, or a lot of players can improve their score. And then once you maximize that, right, then you got to actually swing better. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You got to swing better at some point in time, but there are, there are a lot of, there are a lot of ways that you can get, um, get some strokes back. Yeah, and so I mean, the key concepts we, we bring here is, you know, you got to figure out what, what you need to, what are your weakest links, you know, what are the e low-hanging fruit that you can easily change or, or, or improve and then go from there. And a lot of times, yeah. you know, you, maybe you need an expert or something like that to kind of give you the right idea of, hey, this is this is the problem area or, or maybe this is the problem area and then, and then you can kind of go from there. But yeah. Um, all right, wrap up here. I, I as a physical therapist, you know, I deal with a lot of people that are having injury and having pain. And so I, I wanted to get your thoughts on motor, motor uh, control or motor patterns with injury and, and whatnot. So uh, I guess my question is, is how does pain or injury affect somebody's ability to, to kind of learn a new skill in with, with regards to golf, let's say somebody has uh, a shoulder injury and then they're looking to get back into the into the into golf but they are looking to change their swing because of maybe the, the they feel like the swing led to that that injury yeah yeah so i think how you want to look at that in general this is how i you know i teach my students to look at things and this is a regardless right like i'm working with student like these are my university students i'm working with students that have their movement professionals but they just have a different focus and so regardless of what specific area that, that they're in, whether it be rehab related or performance related, um, it's good to have kind of a framework for how you look at, at movement control, right? And one of the frameworks that's really good at kind of being able to identify all the important components to describe how people move is that whole constraints-based approach, right? To human movement. And it's basically there are three major tenets. There's an individual constraint, um, component or tenant. Um, there's a task constraint and there's an environmental constraint. And really what you're looking at from a rehab standpoint is you're looking at individual constraints. So what they can and cannot do. Um, and over time, those individual constraints are going to change, right? So when you're talking about rehab, you're going to see for yourself those individual constraints because change because you're trying to change them, right? You're trying to right. make them more healthy or more able-bodied. So I think that how I would view it is based on the, that point in time, what is their injury allow them to do and what does it not allow them to do? Right. So it's really being able to identify that. Um, you know, my, I was having, I remember in uh, my PhD seminar, 
um, my PhD advisor, um, forefather in the field of motor control and learning, good friend of mine to this day, um, Dick McGill, we're talking about the uh, MS patient population and how people or practitioners at that time, I don't know if they're still doing it now, but they were trying to make MS patients in terms of their walking gait look more normal, right, in nature. Um, so they're just, they're just whatever it may be, they're trying to make it look more normal. And he was basically saying they have, the nuts and bolts of it was they have these individual constraints. If they can, if they can ambulate or if they can walk from point A to point B within their individual constraints in a safe manner, what does it matter what it looks like, right? Um, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. And so it kind of looks, look, it, it forces practitioners to be able to look at what a person is able to do at that moment in time and say, okay, within those individual constraints, what can we work with and how can I design something? Right. And so from a golf instructor standpoint, if you're talking about your average uh, golfer that plays once a month, they're probably not going to be as mobile and as, and as flexible as a high competitive golfer. So are you going to design their swing around what Dustin Johnson does, or are you going to design it around what they can do? And so that's the same thing from a PT standpoint is you're doing all these modalities over a period of time to make the individual constraints better, but you still need to be able to teach them things within that day-to-day -day situation within the current individual constraints that you have. And so I would just say, match it up like for that day, right? There are all, all sorts of things that you're doing from a rehab standpoint, like strength, range of motion, mobility, all of that type of stuff that are, that are supporting the skill or that are foundational to the skill. And so it's a matter of just matching the skill with what they can or cannot do um, within that rehab situation. It's tough because you guys juggle, you guys juggle a ton of patients that have different injuries and are at different points in their rehab. And um, it's a really challenging task. Well, thank you. <laughs> I think <laughs> um, problem solving part is, is the fun part though. Seeing, yeah. um, and so the other thing that I think from a, a modal learning standpoint and regards to the injury that that's always kind of fascinated me is motor imagery and the use of that for performance. Yeah. So, can you, you know, briefly touch on that? We're, we're, I know we're cutting short on, on time here because promised you'd get out of here at a certain time. And so we're <laughs> closing in on that. But I'd just love to get that little little bit on, on motor imagery and maybe if you use it and how you kind of how do you kind of use it for some of your golfers? Yeah, it's probably not something. So in my team environments, the imagery stuff is usually done a little bit more extensively on the sports psych end. Um, yeah. Some of the things that I will do um, that probably relate a little bit to the motor imagery part is helping people understand their sensory information a little bit better. But what I will say on the imagery part is it is a good thing. It is a good thing to do. There are specific ways that you should do it um, and in specific times. Uh, for example, um, one basic tenet is you know, the imagery always has to happen in the, th in the first person rather than the third person. Um, um, so you can't see yourself doing it. You have the image like you actually doing it. Um, so those sorts of things help. And there are different ways that you can take advantage of. All right. Um, you could do some imagery around this feel or that feel and those sorts of things. Um, so it's something that um, I use a little bit. Um, but mainly I try to. Um, I, I'm trying to get people to or get players to understand their feels as it relates to reality, right? Basically what I'm talking about is perception. Perception is how you interpret sensation or sensory information. And what you have with golfers is that whether you're an amateur golfer or professional golfer is perception changes. It changes from day to day. It changes at periods of time. And so when you operate off fields, which high level players do a lot, um, when they operate off fields, they go, it doesn't feel right. And I'm like, well, probably shouldn't feel right because it's a different time of day, whatever. Right. And we know that workload, sleep, whether you're sick, um, whether you train the day before, those are all going to change fields. Um, and so it's just 
really getting people how to interpret those fields and imagery. There's a pathway through some imagery components that I'll use sometimes through that, but imagery is a good thing. Just kind of do it in first person. It's not going to be an end all be all, but it's, um, it's a piece to the puzzle that can, can help. Yeah. And it's something uh, I remember doing research on this. Uh, I guess this was, was undergrad right before going to PT school and, and yeah. specifically thinking, Oh, you know, this is a great, great opportunity, you know, when somebody's injured where you can kind of get, get some of that or, or maybe they can't get out uh, and play as much and, and whatnot. Yeah. And maybe during the winter I mean, time here. Totally. Yeah. Some. Yeah. I mean, that's a good way to do it. That's a good way to look at it too. If you can't do physical practice, right. Is there a way that you can do mental practice and um, imagery would be a good way to do it. And there's neurophysiological data. Like if you look at some, um, whether it be functional MRI, MRI, whatever it may be. Um, and there's some data that will say that, you know, uh, brain structures that are active in physical practice, um, you'll have similar structures active in um, when they're doing some type of motor imagery. And it's not going to be the same, obviously, but nonetheless, you yeah. still get some activity in those areas. So um, Why there's yawns some are contagious, right? What's that? Why yawns are contagious, right? <laughs> I guess so. I don't know. Like, you know, people sometimes people will ask me like those sorts of questions, and I'm like, "Yeah, I have, I have no idea." <laughs> That's what I was always told. Those mirror neurons, you they fire in your brain and they cause you to be on. But I don't know how how actual that is. But yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I have no idea. I don't. Know. I always base like when people ask me questions, I'm just thinking about studies, and I'm like, "All right, what studies? What group of studies did I know?" And and when you say that, I'm like, I don't know of a single study that. <laughs> All right, I'll go back to my anatomy professor and talk to her about that. <laughs> yeah, or maybe it could be some kind of a, you know, a psychology professor that studies persuasion of some sort may have some, some insight into that. All right. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Will. I've got a few just quick wrap-up questions. They just short answers here for, for our listeners to kind of get to know. You, you and, and maybe a little bit what you think we should get out of this. So first off, what's your favorite golf memory? Oh, I had a practice round or not a practice round. I got to play golf and it was with my son who plays golf, with my brother who plays golf and with my dad that introduced me to play golf. Um, so we got to different generations and it's amazing that I say it because it's only happened one time. And so, and when I see that picture, I'm like, that was super cool. That's awesome. What's your favorite uh, exercise or drill to improve your personal game? Holy moly. Um, <laughs> it's funny. People always ask me how I practice and um, I rarely practice. <laughs> I do a lot of scrimmaging. I do a lot of scrimmaging with my kids, which is kind of a form of practice, but um, I probably today, I'm probably using a ton of focus of attention strategies just because it's, it's one of, yeah, I just use a ton of focus and attention strategies today. They might change later, but at least, you know, what, this December 8th, 2020, I'm using a ton of focus of attention strategies. All right. What's one takeaway you want listeners to apply from today's conversation? Ooh. Um, find a good instructor and then use what they teach you in practice and use good motor learning and control strategies when you're practicing. Awesome. And last one here is who should I get on the podcast? Ooh, let me ask you this. Like what, um, what are you, what would be your focus? Like, are you looking for strategy strength? Like what, it, what, like, is it golf specific? Like, so what do you, my, the goal of the podcast is to, kind of discern the information that's out there to improve golfers so that they can get to the point where they could play under par. So whether that's from a physical standpoint, a mental standpoint, you know, so any of these factors really come in, we've got, you know, physical therapists have come on talking about injuries a little bit more. We've got, you know, personal trainers and strength coaches coming on talking about, you know, how, what you can do from a physical standpoint. We've had some mental coaches coming on talking, you know, from the mental side uh, of, of things and the psychological things that we can kind of do to improve. So, now I've got you on here as a motor learning yeah. control kind of a guy. So, yeah, um, we, we, we run the whole gamut. But, you know, one one person where you think would be a good conversation is is great in, in itself. Yeah, I think what would be most helpful to your listeners, like right away, right, um, 
would be right away would be someone that's focused on strategy, right? And when I think about things like strategy, that type of thing, um, I think of uh, Scott Fawcett, and then I think of, of Mark Brody. And just the way that they they are looking at, it's not even skill development stuff, right? It's not even physical training stuff. It's not even nutritional stuff. It's just how are you making, collecting information about how you play and making better decisions about how you play. I think that is a very, very um, good hack of how you can play better golf right away without changing anything that you do. Right, awesome. Well, that is all the questions for today. Thank you, Wills, for coming on today. Before I let you go, you got to let us know how can we follow you or keep up with, with what you're doing and help out, help out golfers. Yeah, so you can follow me on Instagram at Dr. Will Wu. And then um, you can also check out my Skilled Coaching Alliance website, www.skilledcoachingalliance.com. And then um, Skilled Coaching Alliance also has an Instagram page. Um, at skilled coaching, uh, but primarily on my Instagram page at Dr. Will Wu. Awesome. Well, that's today. That's it for today's episode. We'll have Will's information here and we want to thank him so much for coming on and thank you guys for listening. Have, have a great day. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. Hopefully you've enjoyed this content on the go. If you found it helpful, please share with a friend and leave us a review on iTunes. This allows us to reach more golfers just like you that want to play under par. Do you want to be stronger and healthier? Well, I've got a resource for you, Golf Fitness Tips. It's a free Facebook group where we talk about how to take care of our bodies so that we can play more golf, we can play golf longer in life, and we can play better on the course. If that interests you, then check out the link below or search for Golf Fitness Tips on Facebook.